Test, 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 test. Um, one of the first things I want to do today, before we start on Hebrews, I'd like to talk about the outreach that we had Friday. First of all, I'd like to thank everyone who helped. It was a fabulous amount of help. Um, I, I can't tell you how blessed I was to see all these people uh, from our church coming to the outreach and, and doing everything under the sun. Norm didn't even have to cook hamburgers full time, did you, Norm? He got, he got, he got, he got a break. He normally is our hamburger cooker. Um, so thank you, everyone who came and helped. It was great. There was so much help. It's never been easier for me as far as having an outreach. And I had so I, I got one email from someone, and I thought I'd um, answer his question for all of us. Somebody uh, who was here for the, by the way, one of the things that was a blessing was there were so many new, new uh, people that are new to the church that were at the outreach. And so, so for some of you, this is probably your first time at one of these outreaches. So I, if it was, I'm, I'm glad you participated. One person who was at his first outreach um, emailed me and, and said that he was witnessing to a Buddhist. And he said, well, I feel real, real inadequate, and so now after the fact, I'm, uh, what should I have said? And um, all, all you really need to know is the gospel, but sometimes you do get into apologetic discussions, all right? And so I thought I'd share with you what I told him that I've done at times when you deal with somebody that has an extremely different worldview. Because when that's the case, there's a lot of groundwork that you have to just, right off the bat, discuss. Uh, if you're witnessing to a Buddhist or a Hindu or somebody with an entirely different worldview. And what I mean by that is a different view that of, of the universe, God's relationship to the universe, God is the creator, all of that stuff is different. Because these uh, some of these Eastern religions are monistic, meaning that they think God and the universe are all one. So that's a totally different worldview. So one of the things to remember is that the truth is the truth is the truth, and facts are facts, whether people believe in them or not. Remember the illustration I gave with Norm Geiser, told about the guy with the gun, the guy has a gun and a robber is going to break into his house and rob him, and, and, and you point the gun at the robber, and the robber says, I don't believe in guns. And Norm Geisler says, just pull the trigger. They still work, whether they believe in them or not. And so his illustration was about the truth. The truth is true, and it is effectual whether people believe in it or not. Okay, And we live in the universe God created the way it is, whether people believe in it or not. And so people may say the universe is God, but it's not. And so the truth is effective. You don't have to... Uh, this is probably where I'm most vehemently in disagreement with the seeker movement. You don't have to tell people what they want to hear, because what they want to hear they already believe, and it's never going to save them. All right? You got to tell people what they need to hear. All right. So let's just start with this one. So here's a, someone with a different worldview. The first thing we need to establish is um, where did the universe come from? And the fact is that the created universe, as we see it, is not eternal. And this is provable by scientific fact. Uh, the law of entropy, the, the second law of thermodynamics, that everything tends to disorder. And so it would be accepted by anybody that knows anything about science that if the universe were infinitely old, it would already have died of heat death. 
So the universe cannot be infinitely old. It has to be finite. And so we start out with the universe is finite. So that gives us an either-or. And this is a valid either-or. There's no actual third option. The either-or is either something eternal exists or something not eternal came out of nothing. All right? Just let that sink in. Either something eternal exists or something not eternal came out of nothing. Now, we know the universe is not eternal because of the second law of thermodynamics. So did the universe come from somewhere or did was there just nothing, 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 and then suddenly something appears? Which is... Um, now, we would say that that is absurd and we'd have to rule out that something came out of nothing would be... You know, that would take way more faith than to believe in God. It would be just total blind credulity to think that something came out of nothing. So we, we, so the only viable option is that something eternal exists. But we've already established that the universe is not eternal because it's, it's, uh, winding down. And if it was infinitely old, it would have died. So now we have something that must have been eternal that existed before the universe. And that would be what we call a creator, right? So we establish that there must be a creator that existed for all eternity and that's not dependent on anything outside of his self. Let's just say his, he or it or whatever this being is that created must be eternal and self-existent. Now, the second question is, if we've established that something eternal exists that created the universe... Can we know anything about the attributes of this eternal creator? And we're still now, we haven't even talked about the Bible. We're just talking about what we know from what we can see. The, the uh, Romans 1, you know, the heavens declare the glory of God, it says in Psalm, and what can be known about God from the creation, it says in Romans 1. Now, the next question we need to ask about this being that created, that we know must exist, because the universe is not eternal, is, is this being personal or impersonal? Alright? Uh, so there would be some who would say, well, there's uh, some sort of a divine uh, being of some sort, but how do we know it's the pers- a personal God? It may just be a force in the universe. Well, there's two, there's several arguments that you can make um, that are, are really old arguments for the existence of God, but one of the Arguments would be what we call the cosmological argument, and that is the orderliness of the universe would would point to a personal, intelligent creator. In other words, the the things that we can see about the universe, how its its beauty, its order, uh, would point to an intelligent creator to create order. And things like the anthropic principle that there are these constants in, in the universe that... If they were any different, life couldn't exist on Earth. It would give us an idea that Earth was designed by a designer. So there's several arguments like that. I won't go over all of those. But here's another one that's really quite simple that you can discuss with somebody right out on the street. We know that personality exists. Human beings have personality. We can love, we can hate, we can have joy, we can have sorrow, we can contemplate our own existence. And so, if there is indeed a creator, which you've already established, 
the creator must be personal because we can't believe that the personal comes from the impersonal. I was once witnessing to, to a universalist and she was telling me that she puts her, her life into the hands of the universe and she feels safe. And I said to her, that can't help you. She said, why not? Because the universe is impersonal. Okay, the universe is, is not thinking about you. It's impersonal. All right, and you don't know that the universe has your best interest in mind, but there is a personal creator God. So the, so the next thing to be established is that we have a creator. We have a personal creator with attributes. Now, if the, if the creator is personal, all right, then the creator conceivably could communicate. And a lot of this, by the way, I recommended reading is Francis Schaeffer. He's God, the God who was there, uh, the escape from reason, and he is there and he's not silent. The Schaeffer discusses all of that. Now, if we have a personal God, the question is, has he spoken? And there's where we come to our distinctively Christian claims. Now we go beyond general revelation and we come to specific revelation. And then we point to evidence that Jesus Christ really did exist in history and that he made claims in front of credible witnesses and that Jesus predicted his own resurrection from the dead and that the apostles were willing to die for their belief that Jesus was really raised from the dead. And even the hostile witnesses, in other words, the people in the first century that were not Christian, that were hostile to Christianity, even they agreed that the grave was empty. Nobody claimed that there was a grave with a body in it after that, after the third day. And so, um, coming to, uh, evidence that there's, that Jesus was really raised from the dead and that Jesus was God incarnate who walked among us and spoke, now you have, uh, communication from God in its greatest form. Okay, God spoke to the patriarchs as it says in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. But in these last days, He spoke to us in His Son who actually walked among us, who actually spoke and had disciples and taught. And one of the things that Jesus taught is that the Scripture cannot fail. So now, knowing by credible evidence that Jesus was raised from the dead, we have reason to believe the Bible. Okay? Because He said the Scripture cannot fail. Jesus quoted the Old Testament and said that God spoke in in, in the Bible. So now we have communication from a personal Creator that tells us about Him. We don't have to guess. And this communication counterdicts Buddhism. It doesn't tell us, the Bible doesn't tell us the Eightfold Path. It counterdicts Hinduism. It doesn't teach reincarnation. It tells us there's a point in a man wants to die and after that judgment. And it tells us also the wages of sin. And so then you get to the specifics of the Gospel. So I'm not saying you have to be able to do all that. But I, I thought it was such an interesting question. I got an email. I wanted to share my answer with all of you because uh, it, it never. If you don't, if you don't feel intimidated. Okay, you don't have to be a logician to witness. You don't have to be trained in apologetics to go out on the street and share the gospel, because the gospel is powerful in its own right. So don't get me wrong. If you just say, "This is the truth." Jesus Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. If you know that, that's, say that. That's the power of God. But it also is, if 
you are so inclined to be able to study some apologetics, that's good. It's a, it's a valid thing. And if, and if some are able to, to discourse with people, that's what Paul did on Mars Hill, and give, give answers to people that have it, that's a good thing too. Okay? So feel free to learn as much as you can, but don't get intimidated if you feel like the smart, you might be witnessing to the smartest person in the whole world, but they're still lost sinner. And they need Christ, yes. I think it's important to realize, as you say that, that uh, apologetics don't carry the power of the gospel. They don't carry the, the strength of the word of God. No, it doesn't have the same power, but it certainly points people toward, it holds them into account. In my case, it was a scientist that got me pointed in the right direction. But I wasn't saved through that. I would, see, I, I was sitting in an organic chemistry class, and the professor was uh, charting out the heme molecule and all the carbon bonding. There's an iron molecule with carbon, uh, carbon CH2, CH3, all, how these carbon chains work. And he put that whole thing up on the chalkboard, and I was a total unbeliever. And, and I left the church years ago at that point. And when I saw that, it was just without anybody saying anything, I knew there was a creator. I didn't know anything about the cosmological argument for the existence of God. That's really what that thing was to me. All right. In other words, I said, that's designed. Even the molecules in our body, because that, that professor said if this thing was any different, it wouldn't carry oxygen to the blood to ourselves and we'd all be dead. So there's a very strong argument that an intelligent creator designed heme, uh, the hemoglobin in our blood so that we can be alive. And that was so intricate, there's no way that accidentally came to be. So, as you said, it's true. That didn't convert me, but it convicted me. It, it, it showed that God's divine attributes are real and I'm a fool for saying there's no God. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. So I didn't say that anymore. Now, I wasn't converted. I still had these pesky Christians <laughs> bugging me about my lost condition. And so then I, uh, it, it, that was in March when I saw that heme molecule, and it was in July when I was converted. But it points people along the way. And, it's, and the Bible gives evidence. Okay, it talks about the fact that there is evidence. Um, and... Paul talks about evidence, and so it's good to point people in the right direction, even if it's just the first step of getting convicted that I'm kind of a fool if I believe there's no God. Or planting doubts in your mind that my worldview is correct. Brian, your testimony, somebody was giving you evidence, right? Yeah, Dr. Don Byerly, uh, I went to his seminar, and, and again, like, like you just said, is that the apologetic information didn't, didn't make me become a Christian but it certainly destroyed all my arguments I had against the veracity of the Bible. I mean, that first night, you just took away every argument I ever had. Uh, you've seen that argument I'm presently having with this. I'm having an email. Argument. Yeah, he's witnessing to a new ager. He thought I was a Christian in the contemplative prayer. We've gone back and forth now six, seven times since I, I said what you said. And that's what I'm trying to do first, is I'm trying to break down his belief that the gospel is just mistranslated. It's amazing how many people just say, oh, the Bible's mistranslated. So I wrote back, please tell me how much you studied the original Greek text and how you came to that conclusion. <laughs> and of course he hasn't. It's just something that's repeated that you just say because someone else told me that. And I said to him bluntly, I said, it's not that it's mistranslated. It's just that you don't like what it says, and that's why you're rejecting it. <laughs>
Okay, so absolutely. So uh, uh, if you've heard Brian's testimony, he went to an apologetic, he was in a new age, went to apologetic seminar, thinking that it would be easy to refute the arguments, and, and he, he couldn't refute them because they, they're, they're valid arguments. So um, <clears throat> that's uh, just a little feedback we got. I don't know. I'm sure there's other stories for those of you who are out here. Um, but I, I thank God for each of you, whatever you did, whether you poured water or cooked burgers or picked up chairs or you went out on the streets. With, a lot of people went out with tracks. I saw people out on the four corners out here. Uh, or if you played an instrument, whatever you did, thank you for participating. What a joy to... Um, the saddest thing I have of all of leaving this building is that. And... Um, the people from the church that bought the building, some of them saw it, were very impressed. There was a guy from South Africa that stayed and watched our outreach for about an hour or so. He's there, the music leader for the uh, church that meets here on Saturday. And he and I, he says, is this your congregation? I said, no, maybe a third of them. Two-thirds of these people are just off the street. They, they're not, that's not our congregation. He says, the Lord is using you. And he, he's from South Africa, and he was impressed that we were reaching out like this. So, uh, thank you, thank you. It was it was delightful, and we will find some way. Now, how you do this in St. Louis Park, we'll have to discover. Okay, we'll probably have to do things like advertise or hang flyers on doors or something to do it. Uh, if we go St. Louis Park, there's a little amphitheater. Uh, it's a park, but it looks like an amphitheater just about a block away from. Yes, I saw that. Yes. Yeah, and the hard thing about it is you can't get into apartments to hang things on doors. But we could do a mailing. Okay. <laughs> Build it, they will come. For 20 years. And the second year I got there, we did a Sunday night through Sunday night mini crusade on the parking lot. You start the music. People come. They're still doing that, aren't they? It's called the Soul Liberation. Yeah, I actually ran sound for that a couple of years ago. They have the whole street now. Oh, we had the whole street then. Okay. The first year it was just contained on the parking lot, but then we went on to 34th and. Yeah. Yep. And eventually up on the people's lawns and all of the neighbors' homes. And Ordered that parking lot, you would think they'd be upset. Uh-uh. Not a no, yeah. I, I, I had the privilege of being helping run the sound for that a couple of years ago. I was on the stage running the monitors. It, they, now they bring in professional musicians from all over the country and, and preachers. But the sad thing is now what happened two years ago was the preachers didn't know the gospel. And one guy got up and was bragging. He had a, a Hummer and a... And a, and a Lincoln Navigator, and he's telling everybody how rich he was. Well, that's going to get people safe. And but you know the good here, I, maybe I told the story when it happened a couple of years ago. But what the neat thing was, I I sat there on the stage all Saturday, not hearing the gospel from any of these preachers. They're trying to get everybody all charged up. So stand up, slap your neighbor on the back, raise, raise your hands. Okay, how's that going to save anybody? Tell them the gospel. All right, and and so the thing, but here's what happened: all day long, that was going on. But about six in the evening, 
there was a Hispanic evangelist from Denver who, 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 who came up. And they gave him a turn. And he got up there and preached the gospel. He preached a powerful sermon from, uh, from the Bible with the gospel in it. And all of a sudden, everybody that was just kind of, you know, uh, they just sat there. Instead of all this giddy jump up and down, say amen, the people were sitting there just gripped. And he had their attention because the power of the Holy Spirit was in the words of the gospel. And they sat there, uh, and, the, and they were convicted. And then people were responding to the gospel because he finally preached it. Um, and so I was busy running the, the sound because another group was coming. It was like a mad. Every group you had to run out there and get them with all the mics and everything they needed. But as soon as I had them under control, I ran out in the crowd and I found that guy, I gave him a big hug. And I says, I've been here all day waiting for somebody to do what you just finally did. God bless you. You know, he was old school, I guess. He still remembered the gospel. <laughs> yeah, now he's out crusading about global warming. <laughs> okay, so, yes. Yes. We just finished our eight-week study in the uh, Thursday night Bible study, and so thank you for those who have been praying for that. And um, for those of you who don't know, we've had the Bible study on Thursday nights, so um, it was it went well. People were edified, people learned, people studied, and so we're going to be starting up again in August. So I, I praise the Lord for His faithfulness. Good. Thank you for for doing that. It was you and Dean Schletty that yes. did love that. Thank you, Patrick. Okay. Well, let's get to a fabulous verse. In the book of Hebrews, so we've kind of had, I want to have a little discussion about evangelism while we're still thinking about it. That was great. What a fabulous verse. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Most of you probably have this verse memorized. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes, and forever. And um, first of all, this is certainly a marvelous statement about the person of Christ, that he's eternal, okay, that Jesus Christ exists and he has the attributes of God, which, by the way, needs to be preached and needs to be part of our gospel presentation. Okay? I have something that's of, of interest. I brought, it, I brought it along when we moved to our office. Uh, uh, the Kimballs gave me this. It's, uh, it was a, it's a video from the Mormons about Jesus Christ. And just looking at the surface of it, it sounds like they believe the same thing we do. But it's from the Mormons. Yeah, you gave it to me because some Mormons came by and gave it to you. <laughs> some Mormon missionaries gave it to Sherry and she gave it to me. But if you read the back of the label of the thing, it sounds exactly like what we believe. But as you know, the Mormons have a totally different Christ. They don't have any of the same ideas. and They don't believe that Christ is eternal. Uh, Christ is a man who became a God. He's not eternally God. Of course, their God is a man who became a God. Um, now, why am I saying that? Because you can't assume that people know these things. Everybody, not everybody probably, but most people that are in America have heard about Jesus. They've heard something. All right? And they believe, what do they, what do they know about him? Well, they probably think he's a religious leader or he's somebody like Muhammad that started a religion. 
Everybody has a Jesus. The Jehovah Witnesses have a Jesus. The Mormons have a Jesus. The Muslims have a Jesus. Uh, and uh, even the New Agers have a Jesus. Do they not? The New Agers have a Jesus. So if you just get up and tell people that they need to believe in Jesus without any more facts about that, they may say, they're, they're, they're thinking, oh, I believe in Jesus. You know, I, I, just like, like I believe in Abraham Lincoln. They don't realize the claims of the gospel, nor do they know the person of Christ. So we have to actually teach that. Yes. I have friends that I went through high school with and grew up with that I witnessed to when I first got out of the service and rededicated my life. And um, they grew up in a mainstream, large mainstream Christian church. And they believed that Jesus was the Son of God. But, oh, no, no, Jesus is not God. So they don't believe in the deity of Christ. And so they grew up in a church. So this kind of doctrine, like it's taught here, the eternal immutable nature of God is also the eternal, eternal immutable nature of Jesus. Jesus doesn't change. Okay? Now, what changed was that in the incarnation, Jesus laid aside his divine, some of his divine prerogatives, but he didn't lay aside his deity. Okay? And there's all kinds of false teachings. The early church um, had to fight all kinds of battles. There were these Christological heresies that went on. And you can study that in church history. There were at least a dozen of them that they fought uh, that before finally settling out orthodoxy through the, the influence of Athanasius. I was telling you about him the other day. And <clears throat> so some people, for example, some people believe Jesus' deity came when he was when the dove from heaven came upon him, before that he was just a man, then he became divine when the Holy Spirit came on him. But that's a heresy. Okay? The Jesus Christ is God. John one one. He was with God and he was God. Alright? And that is important. So that's what that's what we're learning here. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So <clears throat> Back in the context, verse 7, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Remember we Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, Jesus spoke. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 or whatever, his words were confirmed by the apostles who spoke them to us. And so the uh, writer of Hebrews is reminding these Hebrew Christians that the words that they heard were the very words of God. They were the words that Jesus revealed, and they were God speaking. All right, so they spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their contact, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, the the Christianity doesn't change. All right, these words that were spoken to you were God's words that were confirmed by the apostles. And the faith that was delivered to you, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, is what Jesus established. It's what Christianity is. It's what uh, we, we all Christians must believe throughout the ages. Christianity isn't going to change in its essence because it is based on Christ who doesn't change. He's the head of the church. He gave us our commission. He gave us our teaching. He gave us our practices. I was explaining that to, to a, a reporter from the Wall Street Journal um, who was writing an article about the purpose-driven movement. And she 
was asking me, because she read my book, and she said, I want, so tell me, in a, in a sound bite, what's wrong with this whole purpose-driven movement? And I said, okay, here's what's wrong with it. It's, it's market-driven. They're, they're using marketing to determine what the church is going to be. What I believe is that Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and Jesus determined what the church should be, and we can't let the market change that. That's, that was my sound bite. And she says, well, if this purpose-driven thing succeeds, what's the church going to look like in 50 years? You know what I said? I said, you know what? First I said, well, it's just going to be the 21st century's version of liberalism. She says, okay, what do you mean by that? So then I told her about the modernist controversy, and then it got kind of long. So I said, all right, let me give you a short version. We don't know what it will look like in 50 years. You know why? The market's going to determine it. And you're writing for the Wall Street Journal, so you know what the market's like. Whoever is the first to adapt to the changing market succeeds, right? But you never know what the market's going to be a month from now or a year from now. If you did, you could be wealthy for sure, all right? So the purpose-driven church is designed to keep a barometer out there on the market, which is the desires and sensibilities of religious consumers. All right, And so we can't know what it's going to be like because who would have thought the emergent church was going to show up? I mean, who would have thought you could sell people on the idea that you should just sit uh, in silence in front of an icon and that would be evangelicalism? I would have never thought that. I I, I think nobody would want to do that. How boring could it be? But people like it. So somebody was clever and they saw the market for uh, mysticism and they created a church for it. All right. Now, what is this verse saying to us? In the context, I was reading uh, some scholarly material on this that did a great job of putting this into context. In the context, the verse isn't just a standalone teaching about the nature of Christ, though it certainly tells us about the nature of Christ. But the point is, because Jesus doesn't change, neither should our faith, neither should our beliefs, Neither should our practice, because this was once for all delivered to the saints. And there isn't some new thing to discover to make the church new and better. It's, it, there are certain things that can change, obviously. We, we meet in different kinds of buildings, depending on where we are in the world. Or, uh, we maybe meet in different times of the day, or we may uh, sing different style of music, depending on where we are in, in the world or in history. Uh, but, but the content of our belief, things like church discipline, things about uh, like communion, what does it mean? Why do Christians have communion? Why have we done this for 2,000 years? All of that stuff was determined by God through Christ, not by the market. Okay? Now, what was going on in the Hebrews was they were thinking they, did, they could change it. Say, so, well, you know, we want to go back to the temple. We're, we're going to have a Christianity that's based on what we liked out of Judaism. We're going to go back and we like the high priest and we, those animal sacrifices are, you know, it's very vivid, okay? And the blood of Jesus, you have to believe that it was shed once for all, but the animals, we actually see that. And so they, and the author of Hebrews say, no, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, forever. He gave you the apostles. They spoke the word of God to you. That word isn't going to change. Imitate their faith. Imitate the faith of the apostles that we have as written in the New Testament. Don't imitate some preacher who happens to be successful. 
Don't imitate whoever, like Joel Osteen. Is it correct to say that our faith should change, but only if it was wrong? Only if the Bible <laughs> okay. said something else, right? Exactly. If there's any, we need to change, but we need to change more like what it says in the Bible from whatever it is we're like now. And so, as Christians, now this, this is the thing that unifies us with the church universal and triumphant. Because remember in Hebrews 12, it talks about the great cloud of witnesses, and it talked about, uh, the, the spirits of the just men made perfect, and the myriads of angels we've come to the mountain that can, not the mountain that cannot be touched, those glorious things it says that we've come to. Well, what unifies us ultimately with the, with God's universal church, um, is that Christians, since the time of the apostles, have been practicing what they did in Acts 2.42. The apostles' teaching, breaking bread, fellowship, and prayer. And when we gather together, like you were talking about, Patrick, a group of people gets together, opens the Bible, and they read it, and they discuss the implications there. What does this mean for us in our lives today? What does this say? What has God spoken? And pray for one another as we need prayer to live up to what God has called. We're doing the things that Christians have done since the time of the apostles. And it doesn't need to be reinvented. Now, it doesn't sound, I guess to some people, they go, oh, gee, uh, you can't think of anything better than that. Uh, No, I can't. (laughs) Frankly, I can't think of anything better than that. Yes, right. Well, the interesting about that is, most of you know, I just finished a book on the very subject I was talking about. My last chapter is called The Foretaste of Glory. And what I do is I take each one of these instances that we see that Bob just outlined, the apostles' teaching, uh, prayer, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and show that this is none of these things are anything that's ever going to cease. The Word of God is something we have we, we have the word of God now written, but it's going to be when we go before our master's feet, it, we're, we're going to be devoting ourselves to the word of God forever. Prayer is communication with God, and when we enter into glory, it's going to be revolutionized. So we're going to be communicating <laughs> with God forever. And then uh, communion is a foreshadow of the ultimate feast that we are going to have with Christ at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And our fellowship is we're just we're an outlet right now. <laughs> huge community which we're all going to together enter into the kingdom with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and recline with them at the table of the kingdom. So it's foretaste of eternity and when you think of it in that manner, you never should ever hear someone say, oh, well, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, but see, they went out and did a market survey and the religious consumers didn't say they wanted that. <laughs> There's their problem, right? That's the problem. See, you can't uh, it, it seems so obvious to me, but I don't know why so few pastors seem to get it. You can't ask the sinners how you should have Christianity. It wasn't. It's not determined by the sinners. It's determined by Christ. Does that make sense? Yes. Oh yeah. Uh, the the the. Yeah, the lady uh, that's doing this article asked me to summarize my book in a paragraph, but I thought she meant literally. So I wrote, so I had Brian and Dick and Keith and and Jan all were helping me. And we we crafted this glorious paragraph, and I said I got it ready. She says, No, I didn't mean a literal one. I just wanted to. 
Well, it was really a good hip air gap. The basic point of it was this. I, I made an analogy with corporate takeovers. And by the way, on, Ju- on July 6th, Jan is going to sit in for Lee Michaels. And she's asked me to be on her show on July 6th in, in, in the afternoon. And we're going to talk about this, this whole corporate takeover thing and people getting booted out of their churches. So anyhow, here the paragraph said, people have learned to live with insecurity. Once the, 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 remember that you never even heard of a hostile takeover until the 80s, right? Okay. The, the corporate raiders, the hostile takeovers, the, uh, mergers, the changes. And, and, and our lives changed. And it used to be that if a person had a job with a blue chip company, you had a job for the rest of your life. And that has changed. And it's created an awful lot of angst and insecurity, especially when it first changed. But young people, and some of you are young here, you go to college, you don't come out of there thinking, I'm going to get a job with a blue chip company and they'll take care of me the rest of my life. Nobody expects that anymore. So we have to learn to keep our resume ready and go here and there because everybody's job is insecure. I said, and that was caused by this corporate takeover. The new management comes in and they need their own, some other team and you go. I said, that, so we live with that insecurity. And that flux, but shouldn't the church provide stability? Now, with the purpose driven, the church has its own version of the corporate takeover. And people that have been in their churches for 30, 40, 50 years suddenly find themselves persona non grata and they're out. And I said, the church should give security that we don't have in our jobs. And this is wrong. That was my paragraph. Is that a pretty good summary of it? Yeah, I thought the Wall Street Journal will understand that. And after, and after I talked with uh, Suzanne, I got a letter and I was telling Jan about it and we, and she said, we've got to use this on the show on July 6th. Um, he says, wouldn't, it's a, a two page handwritten letter from a lady who's 73 years old. Her husband is 83. And she said, my husband helped build our church 50 years ago. And she says, and so she's telling me all the stuff that happened because they, the, a purpose-driven came into their church. And then she said, my husband has an aneurysm. You know that aorta aneurysm? It's in, it, when it bursts, you die. Uh, my dad had surgery for that. But his heart's too weak for surgery. He's 83, and he knows that he could die any day. There's nothing they can do. His heart's weak, and that aneurysm's going to burst, and he's going to die. Unless, you know, God's keeping him so far. All right, so that's the condition. Everybody knows about it in the church. The pastor comes out, sits down, came out for a pastoral visit, sits down with a couple and says, I, I think you should find another church. Yeah, I think you'd be happier somewhere else. You don't fit in here. That was his message. Now, this lady, and God bless her, I mean, she, here's what she said. I'm quoting her. She says, just think about that. My husband has one foot in the grave and another one on a banana peel. And the pastor comes out and tells us to go find a different church. She says, how is that for purpose-driven church? Love. Um, it's almost as if, I, I don't want to do a funeral. Why don't you leave? And that shows that this it's about the same amount of compassion that you see in the corporate world when they show up on Christmas Eve with your pink slip. So you're not needed anymore. You'd think, well, the, how insensitive and how nasty these corporations are. But, but pastors? 
You're not needed. You're not wanted. You don't fit in here anymore. You know why? Because they were asking a pastor to preach the Bible. And it didn't fit his plan. So, Jan, I'll read I'm going to keep that letter. I'm going to bring it and we're going to read it on the radio, part of that letter. And it just shows you, it just illustrates what that whole problem is. Now, how do you avoid that? Because it seems obvious to us that this is just really cruel and, and insensitive. But how do you avoid that? Well, you avoid that by allowing Jesus Christ himself to tell us what the church is. And the church leaders allowing Jesus Christ himself to tell us what a pastor or elder is supposed to look like. It's not that we don't have any information. It's in, um, it's in Timothy, it's in Titus, it's, it's in, uh, I was preaching from Thessalonians about it. And there isn't anything in these descriptions in the Bible that says that we gotta be a, co- a corporate CEO that makes everything adjust to the market forces as they change. Everything doesn't have to change. So Jesus Christ is the one who doesn't change. He's the head of the church. His words don't change. That's the marching orders for the church. And the like Ryan said, the things that he's given us to do is what we're going to be doing in eternity, so we're practicing. All right? And we have a foretaste of glory. Why, why give up a foretaste of glory for, for a little taste of the world inside the church walls? The, the world's, there's plenty of entertainment out there. We don't need to solve that need for entertainment. Is there, is there such a need? I don't even know if it's a, a, a big need, but the world's very good at entertaining. We don't have to do that. It's not necessary. Okay, so this is a bridge, by the way, between verse 7 and verse 8. Verse 7, they spoke the word to us. Verse, excuse me, verse 8 is a bridge between verse 7 and verse 9. Looking at the context, they spoke the word. It was correct word. Imitate their, their faith. Jesus is the same that bridges to don't be carried away by strange teachings. So the thing that keeps us from being carried away by strange teachings is Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and his words, and then the, the faith that the apostles delivered to us, that we are... Uh, urge to emulate and carry forward. So, uh, I totally agree with Ryan uh, that Acts 2.42 is a real good starting place. And uh, we should be doing those sort of things. So, uh, uh, Psalm um, 92-4, through 4, Dean, Patrick, Psalm 102, 27-28, Denise, Isaiah 41-4, um, Linda, Malachi 3 and verse 6, and re- remind me of your name. Molly. Molly. Um, John 8, 56 through 58. John 8, 56 through 58. Kathy, Hebrews 1, 12. And Lois, Revelation 1, 8. Got it? Okay, back over here. Psalm 90, 2 through 4. Hey, before the mountains were brought forth forever... Though has formed the earth and, and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Thou turnest man to destruction, and sayest, Return ye children of men. For a thousand years is in thy sight but as yesterday, when it is past, and as, as a watch in the night. Okay, a thousand years is like yesterday. And there's a 
phrase in the Psalms that's repeated besides that one, Thou art from everlasting to everlasting. Sovereign Grace has a beautiful song um, on one of their CDs, from Everlasting to Everlasting. We uh, we used to have uh, one iteration of our band used to do that song out on the Prowler Reaches. We should get that one. Do you remember? Do you know that song, Ryan? <laughs> I'm not going to ask again. <laughs> I'll have to bring the CD, but that would be a good one for us to do from Everlasting to Everlasting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Psalm 102, 27 and 28. <laughs> but you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Okay, you are the same. So there's a security in God's immutability and... um the Lord actually says, I, the Lord, change not. Oh, I think, sorry, I think I, I took your verse, didn't I? Okay, Isaiah 41, 4. <laughs> Who has reformed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am He. Wow, I am the first and the last, I am He. And remember, Jesus came on the face of the earth and He said, I am he, and he is in italics in your Bible because in the Greek it's a go a me. I am continually existing. That's what Jesus claimed, which was a claim of deity. The same thing said of God in Isaiah 41.4, and the same thing was said at the burning bush. Okay, Malachi 3.6 that I, I uh, spilled the beans. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you are consumed, O sons of Jacob. Therefore, you're not consumed? Okay, I, the Lord, change not. That kind of changes it. <laughs> you got one of those defective Bibles. <laughs> no, it's the glasses. It's not the Bible. The Bible's fine. It's those glasses that are defective. Okay, I, the Lord, change not. Therefore, you're not consumed. So what's the Lord saying? That He's still merciful. <laughs> if God wasn't changelessly merciful... No one would be able to exist long enough to find salvation because his wrath would just be poured out immediately. So God changes that. It means he continues to be merciful. All right. Uh, and then we have John eight fifty six to 58. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Isn't that something? Well, you're, you're not even 50. How did you see Abraham? Well, Abraham saw my day, and before Abraham was, I am. What was Jesus claiming? Deity. He, claiming to be God. And after that, they wanted to kill him. When he, they, they, they just got more angry. Yeah, then they got the stones. They said, okay, if you're going to make that claim, we're going to stone you. <laughs> Interesting point about that verse is they realized what his claim was. And you hear today, well, the Bible never says that Jesus is God. They don't want to believe it, but there's plenty of verses like yes. that. Yes. John chapter 8 is it's sort of a, a um, bookends, claims of deity. Here, because John 8, what a beautiful chapter. You've just been doing John, haven't you? 
John 8 starts, this whole thing started with Jesus saying, unless you believe that I am, you shall die in your sins. Alright? And then they come to some mental assent belief, and then he says there, to those who believed, now he claimed, unless you believe, I am. Alright? He says, uh, if you continue in my words, you'll be my disciples indeed, and you'll know the truth, and truth will set you free. And then they got angry, and they said, well, we're not in bondage. We don't need to be set free. You wrote a paper on that, right, Ryan? The text says they, they believed, and in, in believed in John's usage could mean genuine or inauthentic faith. But Jesus didn't bet their, their belief and say, okay, well, let's just, you know, you know, it, he wasn't seeker sensitive in the least bit. <laughs> because first off, he challenges them and says, if you continue my word, then you, uh, you know, you, I will, if you continue in the word, the son will set you free. And then they got upset because he called them, sla- you know, slave to sin. Right. And then they it, it escalated. Then they claimed to be Abraham's sons. Yeah, and Jesus kept challenging them, and then they ended up calling them children of the devil. He said, "You are of your father, the devil." Yep. And they picked up stones, but it's because Jesus recognized their faith wasn't authentic faith, so he gave them the gospel. Right. And it offended them to the point of wanting. To kill yeah, them. these people you could have put in the category of seekers. Yeah. But rather than giving them less than the gospel so they'll keep coming, he confronted what was faulty in their beliefs, and then they got angry and wanted to stone him. They aligned themselves with him in the text, and then Jesus challenged them. But see, that's a repeated theme in John, because the same thing happened in John 6. They came because they got bread, and he says, well, Monday on my leash. (laughs) They came because of the bread, and then Jesus started challenging them about his true work, his flesh for the life of the world. And then they, got, then they left. They wouldn't follow him. And then John 8, they were willing to believe initially, but then he challenged them about needing to be set free from their bondage to sin. And then they wanted to stone him. So Jesus didn't nurture uh, false belief. He didn't allow people to stay with mental assent and come under less than his full terms. He, he, he demanded full discipleship of everybody, and he did so right up front. And if you want to read a book that describes this most eloquently, is Hard to Believe by John MacArthur. He shows this Jesus didn't just, he laid it off there. It's really tough terms. you got to deny yourself. He said that to people that were lost. So, um, very good. A great verse, by the way. Before Abraham was, I am. So if anybody thinks that the Bible doesn't teach the deity of Christ, John chapter 8 is a great place to take them. Because the, the Jews knew he was claiming that. So much so, they were going to stone him because they thought that he was a blasphemer. Yes. I just thought a point. I always thought it was kind of interesting that, that he was amongst these crowds. He was the focal point. And there was a few places in uh, the Bible that they wanted to stone him. But he would just simply walk up. Yeah, that happened in Luke 4 where he went into his, the synagogue in his hometown Nazareth and he quoted Isaiah 61, 1 through 2, part 1 and 2, right? And then uh, said, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And by the time they got done, they wanted to throw him off a cliff. And he just left. You know, they, he laid down his own life at the right time. They were not going to take it from him. That, and he said that in John. Yes. Okay, so you had um, Kathy, Hebrews 1.12. Like a cloak, he will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. 
Yeah, I was talking about the universe, right? What was the verse? What verse eleven? What was verse eleven? Yeah. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow like old garments. Will grow old yeah. like a garment. Yeah, the creation is. That's what I was saying earlier about apologetics. The creation is not eternal, but God is eternal. So there you go. Okay, then we had Revelation one and verse eight. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. There, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That's Jesus claiming his eternal existence as God. So, we have a glorious privilege of participating in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And as Ryan was saying, uh, when we gather together like we do here this morning, and we open up the Bible together, and we talk about the implications about who the Lord is, what the gospel is, what his calling on us is, what the Christian life is about, and we pray and we, we worship God and we, we gather together and we're going to have communion a day, we break bread, we are participating with Christians throughout the ages and we're preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb and eternal glory, where these same things will still be going on. I, I heard MacArthur say uh, at this pastor's breakfast, he said that, that there's one thing that we can't do in heaven. He says most of the things that we're doing now we can do in heaven. But one thing we can't do in heaven is preach the gospel to the lost, because they won't be there. <laughs> so the one thing we, we need to do here the most, <laughs> is to preach the gospel. We can't do that in heaven. These other things we can do in heaven, and they're a glorious privilege to participate in our fellowship together. All right? So, uh, this morning, Ryan will be preaching for the book of Ephesians, and we are going to have communion, so be thinking about the Lord's death until he comes, and what a glorious privilege it is to participate in the benefits of his saving death burial and resurrection, and how the blood has cleansed us from sin. So thank you, God bless you, and we'll see you upstairs in a half hour.